that you would open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 26 this morning. And as you turn there, I will offer up a prayer that the Holy Spirit will illuminate this text to us and it will benefit our hearts and our souls that we might serve and honor the Lord. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your many blessings. Lord, we come humbly before you, recognizing that if left to ourselves, we would just continue to wander aimlessly without hope and without God. But Lord, you have valued us and cared for us and drawn us not only to yourself, but have sent forth your Spirit, have poured out your Spirit into our hearts, that we might not only have the Spirit to lead and guide us, but that we might know and experience truly the love of God for us and to see it demonstrated for us in the person and work of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would bless us this morning. We ask that you would use the Word of God to lead your people into all truth. We ask, Lord, that you would use your Word this morning, maybe even to convert the soul so that those who are without knowledge of Christ and without a relationship with Him would be drawn to you even this morning, O Savior of mankind. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me as we read from Genesis, we'll give honor to God's Word. This is God's Word. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, or wandering, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Mathushael, and Mathushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man or a boy for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also, also a son was born, and he kept, called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Why are we looking at Genesis? Why are we thinking through this? Well, I'd like to talk about a few things that I think Genesis is doing for us. Genesis displays for us goodness, beauty, truth, love. These are, these are things that are relevant to people. These aren't just part of, of, of some ideal that human beings have, but rather it's the reality that God has placed to us. These are aspects of who God is himself, goodness and beauty and truth and love. And Genesis lays that out for us very carefully and, and shows to us that these things matter and, and they're relevant to everyday life. But Genesis also deals with the questions that people are struggling with today. Think about this. People struggle with meaning, purpose, security, stability, 
death, abuse, failure, belief, faith. These are all things that people in our culture and our society that we ourselves wrestle with. We struggle with these things. And Genesis comes and lays these things right before our eyes and begins to deal with them and unpack them. Here in this passage, we see all of this laid out before us in some measure. And so I want us to begin to take a look at this and begin to unpack this. We're going to look at it under three headings, goodness, sin, grace. Pretty simple. And look at under the heading of goodness, look under the heading of sin, and look under the heading of grace. And we're going to talk about how that works itself out through this entire passage. The first thing I want you to look at is goodness. We know here from verse 16 that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of wandering east of Eden. And God had told him, Cain, you're going to be a wanderer. And so out he went. We know when we looked at in the past that God had placed a mark on Cain, had been merciful to Cain, even though Cain was a murderer of his brother and a murderer of the one who we have every reason to believe was of the seed of the woman, which was part of the promise. God um, allows Cain to carry out his plans of murder. Cain does it. God comes and calls Cain to account. Cain is going to be a wanderer. The ground He's cursed from the ground. And Cain leaves the presence of the Lord and begins to wander in the land of wandering, east of Eden. But what do we see here in this text is, again, um, an incredible display of God's goodness. Because remember that marriage was originally given for several reasons. One of them was given that men and women might know one another and be intimate with one another, not just in a sexual way, but completely, that there would be community and caring and mutual sharing and love and Remember we talked about last time that Adam, we had seen that mercy shown to Adam, that he knew Eve, that God had been merciful to him, and that Adam had actually known Eve, not just had had sex with her to procreate, but he'd actually known her. Look at what the text informs us here, that, that Cain knew his wife. And Do you see the measure of goodness that's displayed here in the text? That same word, it's not a different word, it's the same word. Cain, this seed of the serpent, this killer of his brother has the privilege of in some, even if it's twisted and perverted in some measures, still there's some glimmer of the very original intent of marriage, even for this person who is wandering away from God. He is able to have a family, to have a wife, to know her in some real sense. And we need to see that and we need to understand that because, quite frankly, if the Bible was just trying to be incredibly biased, it wouldn't tell us anything about Cain. Or it'd say, you know, Cain just had it horrible and everything just went really bad for him. He was a really despicable human being and his generation just went to hell in a handbag. The end. But Scripture does not tell us that. It says that Cain left and went out from the presence of the Lord and got himself a wife and got himself a family and at least in some sense had a form of happiness. And that's going to be important for us to consider, but let's go further. So he gets a family. It also tells us that 
Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and after he'd conceived him a son and gotten him a wife, he, he established him a place, a city, that he calls Enoch. He, he comes to a place. He, he basically says, okay, um, I've wandered and wandered and wandered, and, and at some point I've got to somehow get some stability, some security. And so he builds a city. And don't, in your mind, have this idea of big walls and it probably was a dirt mound and some mud huts. I mean, that's probably what we're talking about. But he builds a city and calls it Enoch, calls it after his son. And he establishes a place. And as the generations go down, we see that out of Cain's line, we get music and poetry. Look at what the text tells us. We move on down through the various sons and grandsons and great-grandsons down to the seventh generation of Lamech. And Lamech has two wives, and from those two wives we get Jubal, who is the one who plays the lyre and the pipe. And you might think, well, you know, that's music, but don't just stop at music because realize most of the times when you're playing the lyre and the pipe, usually it was a, a used to tell stories, to, to give epic poems and, and sagas. And so we see the, the root of this idea of poetry and, and this particular form of art. And you also find out that from among this group of people, you have the, the, the beginnings of art and skilled craftsmanship. You see the ideas of being able to work with various forms of metal, producing all kinds of beauty. And we see um, the realities being lived out there. We also see that we have one who becomes a dweller in tents and has livestock. And so it's, this idea here is not to say, because you might jump right back and go, well, didn't Abel have livestock and, you know, those kind of, well, yes, he did. But what we have here is the idea of there's a city and then attached to that city is those who dwell in tents alongside that city. And so we have the idea of the, not just raising a small little herd, but this whole development of husbandry and developing various forms of, of cattle and development. And that's the idea that's supposed to be here, that it's this great advancement of all types of, of domestication of animals. And so we see him doing this, and notice where this is coming from. It's not coming from Abel. Abel's dead. It comes from Cain. It comes from the line that the Scriptures are telling us are not... The good guys. If there's the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, Cain's the seed of the serpent, and yet what we see here is goodness. Art's not bad, it's good. Music's not bad, it's good. Domesticating animals isn't bad, it's good. In some sense, it's, it's a furthering of the cultural mandate. It's a good thing. It's goodness. It's beauty. There's a certain sense of truth to this. This is truth because a man's supposed to take him a wife. They're supposed to produce children. They're supposed to propagate them on the earth. And so we see this unfolding going on. The other thing we see is that there's some measure of religion being developed here. These people are not without religion. And you might say, well, aren't you kind of stretching, Dennis? No, let's look at a few things here that might help us. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad fathered Mahujael. Now, for those of you that know anything about biblical names, when you see El at the end, El is the name of God, Elohim, God. And the idea here is, is that these folks have not abandoned all sense of religion. What we have every reason to believe is potentially a lot of this development of cr critters and 
instruments to play, and art is probably, at least in some measure, being used for religion, for religious purposes, for worship. Now, you might think again, well, that's a huge stretch for you to say that, but think about this. Every single thing you read about right here will find its root in the tabernacle and the temple of the Lord for the purpose of worship. And one of the things we learn as we read through the Bible is what? That a lot of the nations circumcised people, but God said that circumcision for us is distinct and special. A lot of the nations worshipped all kinds of gods, but God said, but there's only one way to rightly worship me. But notice what he uses. He uses the very things that Cain's line develops in the worship of the one true God. Now, at some point, we have to come to terms with that. And the way we come to terms with that is to see that God's goodness is shown to everyone, even those who hate his guts even those who want to have nothing to do with Him, who run away from His presence. We see that God's goodness, as Scripture tells us, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. God's goodness is pervasive. And it also tells us this, that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you get to be the inventor of Microsoft. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you get to be the inventor of Apple. Or any other such thing. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're going to be the discoverer of new and foreign lands or far reaches of space. Oftentimes, and quite frankly, if we're really honest with ourselves, most of the time, those kind of things ultimately are discovered by people who do not have any use for God. In fact, some of the things that drive them to discover some of these things (laughs) is trying to get rid of God or to keep Him at bay. And so I want you to begin to understand that part of thinking as Christians is to realize that if you basically say, I want nothing to do with any of the things or any of the people out here, you basically have just cut yourself off from, in some sense, God's goodness. Everything out there is not bad. And everything in here is not good. And we have to live with that tension, that reality that's going on around us. God's goodness is pervading this planet despite human beings serving or not serving Him. He continues to allow culture and allow technology and other things to develop. The purpose for them then becomes important. And what we begin to see is this progression away from God. The problem is not building cities. The problem is not developing technology. The problem is not art. The problem is not the theater. The problem is not movies. The problem, see where I'm going. What is the intent and purpose that the heart has for what those things are used for and how we think about them? Well, what we begin to see here is this. Culture cannot redeem. Do you see that? What we begin to see under, under now that we've looked at goodness, we now come under the heading of sin. And what we begin to see is, is that Adam, I mean Cain, because he moves away from the presence of God and begins to develop all these things using God's goodness, using common goodness to develop these things, what he begins to do is he begins to try and develop a culture, a religion, everything he tries to create apart from the one true God. 
He wants to distance himself from God. And as a result, what he does is he begins to distance his offspring from the grace of God. And as he begins to distance his offspring from the mercy and grace of God, we see them spiraling down worse and worse and worse until we get to Lamech. I want you to think about this. Um, in the Atlantic Monthly, a man writing there who certainly is no professing Christian, his name is Walter Kern, he writes this. Where do you want to go today, asked Microsoft in the mid-1990s ad campaign. The suggestion was there were endless destinations, some geographic, some social, some intellectual, that you could reach in milliseconds by loading the right devices with the right software. It was further insinuated that where you went was purely up to you, not your spouse, your boss, your kids, or your government. What you were getting and being promised was autonomy through automation. We could be free, just push the button. You don't have to ask anybody. Just get the right program on your computer and click, 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 and you're off and running. Now, I'm not going to go through the rest of this article, but I want you to understand that here's a guy who has no Christian agenda who's basically saying there's a problem in the world's order. Because what it keeps promising us, notice, what's, what's technology supposed to provide for us? Security and safety. And it's supposed to protect us. I mean, that's why we keep creating bigger, better, badder bombs, right? My Raytheon guys and other people who work in such, I mean... You gotta have a, and if you can make it smaller and more effective, all the better. Cause then you can hide it. Right? And it's all in the name of being able to threaten people that if you, if you try to mess with us, we'll mess with you. Technology is supposed to give us safety, security. That's what we're looking for it to do. But notice what this writer is saying is, is that, but technology has not stopped us from wandering. What he's saying is Microsoft basically is creating and making you a wanderer. You click. Look where you can go. That was the whole mantra. Look where you can go. Look at what Cain's problem was. He was a wanderer. He's saying, I want to find some sense of permanence. Culture cannot redeem you from restlessness. It cannot redeem you out of this plague of wandering, looking, searching for that thing which will make you sense fulfillment and wholeness. What we see being demonstrated both today presently and what we see being demonstrated in this text in the past is this, that when you put your hope in anything of this planet, no matter how good its origins, no matter how beautiful, how truthful, how loving, how glorious it may be, it cannot redeem you. It cannot bring you peace. It cannot answer your deepest heart's questions. And even people writing in the Atlantic Monthly understand that. Even if they don't have good answers. I'm not quite done with the article yet, but he goes on. He unpacks all of this and really is saying, look, technology is a mask. It's not really helping us. It's setting up an illusion which actually is dumbing us down and hurting us in certain ways. This is not a Christian, folks. This is a dude looking at the world from science and evolution and technology and all those things and saying, we want something. 
We need wholeness and we're not getting it here. This is actually degenerating us. It's, it's dissecting us. It's hurting us. But guess what? His only answer is to go back, in some sense, to caveman days. The problem is, we're back in caveman days. And what did they get? The same problem. Sin is pervasive. No matter how much you build cities, no matter how much technology you create, no matter how artful and skillful and entertaining you might be, you cannot escape the reality of what sin does. It destroys. What this text also shows to us is the fact that you can't just sin a little bit. Would you just, just a little sin? Well, that's not really so bad. What this text is really saying is, as soon as you start to sin a little bit, you're going to sin a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more and all of a sudden that passes down from you now to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. So we get down to the generation of completion, i.e. Lamech, and look what we got. We got an absolute jerk of a human being. He's the first polygamist recorded in the Bible. He's the first one that doesn't just have one wife. He says, you know what? I'm having two. And the names of Adam and Zillah actually are very external. One, one I think, means um, it's some form of outward beauty. The other one means the actual word is tinkling, but don't think of going to the bathroom. Think about the idea of jewelry clanging together. That's what it is. All this jewelry and this external beauty, and that's what he's after, and that's what he's concerned with, and that's what really matters to him. You know, he wants to have some healthy babies. I mean, just think about this kind of early genetic manipulation. I marry these really attractive, healthy women, and that way we can produce really healthy and attractive, successful people who can prosper, who can be very educated and very skilled and very thoughtful. To what end? To the end that he basically hollers out these threats to his wives. You know, I've slapped a man for looking wrong at me. And I've killed a man for insulting me. And actually the word there actually would be better translated boy. So what you have here is a man who in one sense is a wife threatener and a child abuser. That's what we end up with. You can't just say it's just a little bit of sin. It's just a murder of, of, of vapor man. Remember Abel? It's just, he was worthless anyway. Does that make sense? You, you can't just kill one person and say, well, you know, they didn't even matter anyway. See, what Scripture is saying is people matter. And if you kill one, it won't stop there. It won't stop. If you sin here, you won't stop. Sin's pervasive. Adam's one sin is being pervasive in his son Cain. There's no stopping it. And Lamech's naming of his young daughter, Naama, actually means, to, the literal translation means gorgeous. So his other three sons have the idea of festival or festivity, and his, and his young daughter's name is gorgeous. Incredibly beautiful. That's where we end up with. Does that sound familiar? 
Life's a party. Fashion and beauty are what matter. Ever, for those of you that, for better or for worse, grew up watching Saturday Night Live, I mean, don't you remember Fernando? It's better to look good than to feel good, right? And darling, you look marvelous. That's kind of what Lamech says to his daughter. Sweetie, you look marvelous. The boys are the right kind of guys. They know how to go out and throw a party. And we birth us a daughter who's easy on the eyes. And that's what matters. That's what's valued. That's what's supposed to save. And do you see that it doesn't? It's empty. It's vacuous. It just leads to hatred and anger and rage and abuse, which is what Lamech does. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, I'll avenge myself seventy-sevenfold. Do you see the God-hating statement that that is? Because who actually made that statement to Cain? Not Cain himself, but God. And do you see how one sin has brought us to this place in the text? It's horrible. It's awful. What we ultimately see here is rejection of God's order leads to a self-sufficient society. A society that's trying to run on its own. And this is the first example of what Scripture will call, especially in the New Testament, the world. Now that should be helpful for us as we read the New Testament when it says the world. Because oftentimes when it talks about the world, this is what it's talking about. The idea of a Humanity seeking to be self-sufficient, self-securing, self-enduring, self-enabling, self-esteeming. That's what's being created here. And it shouldn't surprise us that people can believe that the machine works. They can go through their everyday life and look at you when you talk to them about their need and go, what need? My kids are well-fed. I've got a job that's fulfilling. I've got a wife that I have a pretty good relationship with. See, too often, and I think in some ways, not that I'm happy about this, but in some ways maybe it's, it's a backhanded mercy that the church's divorce rate and the society's divorce rate have been neck and neck. And actually, in, in some, some points in the last 10 or 15 years, the church's divorce rate has actually been higher than the culture's. See, in some ways what that's telling us is this. Just because you're in the church doesn't mean you're going to have a great marriage. It doesn't mean everything's going to run great for you. It's not, the church is not a place to go and find you a good wife to have a great relationship with because you know she'll be a good girl. I grew up in a culture where guys would say, I'm going to, you know, I'm dating all these girls in the, in the clubs. You know, when I go to find me a wife, I'm going to go to a church. You know, I want, to, I want a good girl. Why? Because you're a good guy? Because you're going to love and cherish and nurture her? The tragedy is what these guys never understood was that all the bad girls at the bar were saying the same thing in reverse. I'm going I'm to mess around and sleep with all these guys, but eventually, when I look for a husband, I'm going to go to the church and find me a husband. And guess what? There's your singles groups at church. <laughs> There's no rescue. Do you see? The church is not about hooking you up with a great mate. You can't escape the realities of sin just because you showed up at church. 
Just because people are being told good things they ought to do and good things they ought to act like, that will not save you. Sin is rolling. And we need to understand that. And if you hear that and see that, then you start to understand how when we get to the bottom of this text, we get to the last few verses, why this is such good news. Because see, that's what the text is drawing you to. It's saying there is no hope. It's sin is just going and going and going, and there's no hope. And there seems to be no help. And listen to what the text says. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another seed, another offspring, another seed, instead of the vapor boy, instead of Abel. For Cain, the one who I thought I'd gotten me a man with, killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, which most places in Scripture is usually attached to frailty or weakness. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, do you understand why the the third point, we go from goodness, we see the realities of sin, and what we realize what we desperately need is what? Grace. Because Technology cannot help us. Culture will not redeem us. None of these things are going to get us out of the problem. The problem is sin. And it's got no answer for it. And what we see God doing is basically drawing Eve as she watches this unfolding back to this need. You need something that your children with all their innovation cannot provide you. It's not going to get better. You're not going to work your way out of it. You're not going to elevate. It's just going to continue to spiral out of control. And so what's the theology that's taught to Seth? Seth, you're a needy man. You're a desperate man. You're a sinful man. But she's not lost hope in the middle of that. Because, see, she's believing something. She's remembering a promise. When she says, He's appointed to me another seed, what's she done? She's gone back and said, God made a promise that out of my womb would come a seed that would save mankind from their sin, from their desperateness, from their wandering. So she looks back and remembers and sees it, and is encouraged by it. And then we see at the very end of this text what grace does. It makes people cry out for salvation. That's what grace does. Grace says, Lord, I need You. Grace awakens us. Grace says, you can't keep living like this. That's what we're told in Titus 2. Grace has appeared teaching us to say no to unrighteousness. Why? Because that leads to death. pointing us to our need of one who can save us from sin and will be a worker of good deeds in us because we know that that is the way of life. 
And so we see what happens here is as Enosh and his frailty and his, and his descendants, we see that these people don't necessarily shun the technological advancements that their cousins make, but their whole understanding of it is much more related to what the writer of Hebrews says. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Remember who invented those tents? Heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Do you see what grace is doing? Grace says you can't put your faith in the stuff. If you put your faith in the stuff, no matter how awesome you make it, no matter how incredible you develop it, it will fail you. It will be your undoing. And men and women, we've seen that in the last generation. Two world wars showed us that technology and its advancement cannot spare us from the outworkings of sin. It only ultimately leads to jealousy, wrath, rage. So in conclusion, this is what I want to go back to that article by Kern and just kind of sum up a couple of things for you. Kern goes on to write this formulation was really why Microsoft created that formulation to begin with was this. It wasn't really about selling you freedom. What it was really about was giving you an inferior substitute. Namely, listen to these, efficiency, convenience, and mobility. Now, folks, I want you to think about the church. Efficiency, convenience, mobility. What do we value? How, is, how do we think about this? How are we thinking through these things? I heard a joke yesterday that I thought was really funny, but it really struck me both in its humor but also its seriousness. Optimists say the glass is half full. Pessimists say the glass is half empty. But engineers say there's an, inef there's an inefficient use of space. Too often, though, men and women, I'm afraid that that kind of mentality pervades the church. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that in, in one simple thing. Light only goes so high. The temple was built way higher than light could go, candlelight. Who was the rest of that built for? It's empty space, right? Inefficient. If the candlelight can only go to here, why build the temple any higher? Who were the rocks taken off the, off the land of Israel and dumped in the Jordan River that when the water flowed back over it, no one could see? You understand the rocks that were taken out of the Jordan River and posted on the side, but what was the point of putting all those underneath the water? They're for God. The beauty in the top of that darkness in that temple was for God. And see, sometimes in our efforts to do things and to think things, we forget that sometimes God doesn't look very efficient in our way of thinking. Sometimes God's lack of enabling you to be very mobile, whether it's upwardly moving or outwardly growing, 
is a mercy, not a hindrance. Sometimes inconvenience actually is a way of God sparing you from doing things which if they were very convenient to you would lead to your destruction. And do you see what technology is trying to do? Convenient, efficient, mobile. And it's not always helping. It's selling us a lie which says, go, 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 but don't think. Don't consider. Don't ponder why. Just do. Now, as we conclude, and let me say this emphatically, that is no slam on engineers, men and women, and if you feel that way, please don't. I realize this room has a, a load of engineers in it. <laughs> I've already told you, remember the first point, if I need to go back, goodness. Those are wonderful and beautiful things. What I'm asking maybe the engineers in this room to do is to say, how do we think about God and His agenda and not get entrapped in the world's agenda. And I think that's a hard place. Without God, there can be no rest, no reprieve from the wanderings. If one tries to build permanence, he only finds his mind and heart wandering. If he tries to establish autonomy or self-sufficiency, he finds that freedom has given way to the machine. All he can do is keep feeding the machine, feeding the machine, feeding the machine. And all that's left is you get the rock band rage against the machine. What you get is rage and violence. What you get is hatred. I hate the machine. But notice what's lacking. Mercy. Grace. It's lacking. You just have this war of the machine and the haters of the machine. You have all the great movies that we see. You have the Matrix. You have all these type things. This war between the machine and the non-machine. But you have no real redemption, no real rest, because you're hoping somehow that within ourselves or within what we can develop, we will find hope. What we need is one who can offer forgiveness 70 times 7. See, don't you know, don't you hear Jesus? How often should you forgive somebody? Not 70 times. But 70 times 7. Do you hear Jesus saying, Lamech, one has come that is greater than you and your might and your technology and your strength. We don't need religion or irreligion. We need a Savior and a King. One who can subdue our restless, wandering, fearful hearts and redeem us from our secret sins and the misdeeds dark, which we know when we go to sleep at night they're there. We know what we think. We know what. And if people could see it, they'd be aghast. We need someone who can do something about those nightmares. We need someone that can do something about the wandering that we feel in our hearts. And, in, in, and we, we need one who can offer us a city whose foundations are not made with human hands. And indeed, we find that in Jesus. And I close with these words. This is what Jesus said to His disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. That is the hope of the people of God. Not that this place will save us, but that a man, 
Jesus will keep his promises to prepare us a place where we can rest, where we can feel secure, where love and truth and beauty and goodness will not be what we put our hope in, but the God that stands behind them. May God make it so in our midst.